You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. People and the messiness and the somewhat incomplete nature of what we create is what brings value to design is what invites participation, it's what brings people back into the process. And the more hermetic and um, you know curated elements of how we'd like our design to look are often what holds us back. Hello, I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of MEX, and that was Robert Fabricant, my guest on the show, talking about a philosophy, one which I think has come with the hindsight of being deep into a career about how design in the real world thrives upon quirks, disorder, all the things which might make a student at design school feel like that project that they were working on wasn't actually slick enough, but that actually he's found he wished he'd known when he was setting out in the world of design for himself. You know, it's it's hard to know if someone like Robert even needs an introduction for most of you. He's someone many of you, I'm sure, will have seen speaking at conferences over the years. He's the co-author with Cliff Kwong of the book User Friendly. You know, this is a book which has crossed that bridge to take the story of user-centered design out of just the studios and into a much wider audience of business leaders and show how design is really intertwined with our daily lives for a much bigger audience. He's co-founder and partner at Dahlberg Design, you know, one of the practices which is taking human-centered design to where it's needed most, in government, in international development, areas with social impact. But when he and I met, he was actually executive creative director for Frog Design. I mean, it's another firm which probably doesn't need much introduction for most of you. And Robert came to our MEX conference back in May 2009 to talk about this work that he was involved with using mobile technology and human-centered design principles to tackle the challenges around HIV in Africa. So you know, we've kept in touch on and off in that time and it was actually after I'd talked to Mark Ralston, who you may remember from episode 68 of this podcast. Now, Mark had worked with Robert at Frog and reminded me, hey, you should really get Robert to come on the podcast. So that's what we did. And we actually recorded this conversation back in September 2020. And, you know, it was one of those beautifully wide ranging chats where we get to talk about everything from the Japanese robot toys, which were an early influence on Robert's understanding of interaction design, uh, to how this quite extended writing period for the book coincided with having to adjust his thinking about the role of design, particularly digital design, as during the time that he was engaged in writing with his co-author, that the nature of feeling about digital and, and social networks in particular began to change around them. And we talk about how his own practices have changed as 
in his own words, he's become someone with some grey hair. And, you know, how he's tried to keep on challenging himself as he's got deeper into that career. So it's just a, a really expansive, explorative chat, which felt like a lovely way to catch up with Robert after not having talked for some time. Now, I'm sorry these podcasts haven't been more frequent recently. I feel like I owe you an apology for this. That is something I'm working on, and I hope to have more episodes for you over the next few weeks. But for now, here's my chat with Robert Fabricant. Hope you enjoy. So let's go right back. Were you around what you would consider now to be design growing up? I felt very lucky growing up in New York City. You know, we're talking about the 70s. And um, as a creative kid, I felt like I had a lot of outlets that I didn't think, you know, from having been at camp and doing some like Boy Scout backpacking type stuff out West, I hadn't felt that you know, at that time, a lot of other kids were exposed to. So in general, I felt lucky. I didn't know that it was design. I was a creative kid. I drew, I painted, I did all that stuff. And I felt like it was an environment, both in the physical environment with my parents, where they placed a value on that, on going to museums, on, you know, it's a little more art oriented than design. But as I got into high school and I started to, you know, explore and understand what, what my friend's parents did, for example, you know, uh, uh, one of my friend's fathers was a pretty well-known corporate graphic designer, um, uh, Tom Geismar, and I had a chance to work in his studio. My mother is a food writer and cookbook writer, so I had a chance to work at a public publishing house. Uh, I had a chance to work at MoMA, so I had a chance to nose around some aspects of design, uh, architecture a little bit as well as a kid. Um, and I liked, I liked both the, the pure art side of making stuff. And I also liked the sort of craft side, just building things and, and making things. So I, I definitely felt lucky in that it was a fertile environment, but I don't think I had a clue what design was beyond like a book or a logo. Do you remember there being a point where you started to make that differentiation between, I suppose, what was art, what was craft, what was design? And then, you know, even within design itself, what was graphic design versus industrial design versus the myriad other forms and monikers that we apply to this this discipline? You know, I'll take a dog leg, but uh, in middle school, which, you know, in, uh, in the U.S. was like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I had a really good friend named uh, Billy Farrell. And uh, he and I spent a lot of time, as a lot of kids did back then, nosing around comic book stores, buying used comics, reading comics, and drawing them. And in addition to comics, there's a store that opened up on, I lived on West 86th Street, my parents still live there. So on 86th in Amsterdam, a little comic book store opened. And most of the time we were just thumbing through the back bins, buying old used comics, because they were like a quarter, you know, and mostly Marvel comics and coming up with our own characters. It was a lot of fun. And Billy also loved to build models. Like his father wasn't a designer, was a photographer, but um, for whatever reason, Billy loved to build model planes, model cars, all that stuff. So we were kind of in that world. And this particular comic book store started carrying these Japanese robots. And I collect them now. I kind of came back to this 
later in life, and I can tell you why. But there were these physical metal and plastic amalgamations, and a lot of them had movable and replaceable parts. So you could take them apart and rebuild them. It was like a step up from Lego, and these things were, you know, they were the transformers of their day, but really incredibly well-crafted. Die-cast metal, heavy pieces, heavy parts, lots of moving parts. My favorite one, which I can share a picture of, is this mechanical King Kong-like figure that has these knives that shoot from its nipples and these replaceable metal plates on its body and, you know, can be combined with a sort of Godzilla-type, several Godzilla-type characters with many similar parts and shooting missiles and arrows and things. And it was the first time that, like, my visual, like, fantasy world connected with something very physical. It sounds pretty terrifying. No, no, not terrifying at all. I mean, just so much fun. And the thing about these robots is that we both were just like immediately hooked and they sat up on this high shelf in these boxes. And so, but they were really expensive. You know, they've been imported from Japan. I don't know why this one comic book store was carrying them. I don't know what they cost at the time, but they were way beyond stuff that we could, you know, kind of use our allowance on. And so we started begging our parents for at every occasion, birthdays, Christmas, it's like this was all we wanted was the next one of these that came in. And um, yeah, so it was like the first time and, and then we would play with them, recombine them, you know, uh, build stuff for them. It's just the first time that I remember like the world of my, my visual world and the product world really connecting together uh, and starting to think that um, these characters weren't just like an artistic creation, the design of how they fit together, how the parts fit together, how you could recombine the parts, like all of that had a logic to it. And had, it was, what I loved about the Japanese aesthetic is that there was a, an efficiency to the system of them in terms of how they fit together. But yet there was this incredible indulgence to the, you know, form they took in terms of, again, like, you know, the, the engineering that went to the simple construction of these, you know, nipples with these missiles coming out of them and stuff. Like only the Japanese would take an idea like that, break it down into something serious, structured and systematic, and yet let it still have that, you know, incredibly playful and, um, you know, uh, they were just so colorful, like that, that, that fantastic quality, you know, like that serious engineering with this kind of fantastic quality was just, it just blew me away. And um, so I think that was probably the first time when I started to think like there's something else that someone here has figured out. And it wasn't just the physical, you know, um, construction of how you fit these together in this modular way. It was the behavior it allowed you to do in terms of, you know, opening up this world for me and my friend to kind of rethink these characters, rebuild them, create new characters out of them. So that's probably my earliest memory of where, you know, something probably flipped a switch that was different than just, you know, graphic the graphic design stuff that I think I, I had already been exposed to. It's, it's intriguing that it was something sort of playful and from the world of, I suppose, what you'd call toys. I, I do often think that we perhaps underestimate just what a serious business it is to create a good toy you know the the interaction design there that you're talking about that that was such an engaging thing when it works it feels playful it feels fun but to get it to that point when it feels that way is a real 
challenge. I mean, I know you've worked across many different industries in many different areas since as a, a practicing designer, but have you had the chance yourself to try your skills in that area of more playful products or, or toys? Not a lot. It's a really good question. And, um, you know, it was something when I was at Frog that we were constantly knocking the door of the opportunity to work on toys specifically. And it's people don't realize it's such a demanding part of the product design world because it has to be both so delightful and so heavily value engineered. We did it. I'm trying to remember what we worked on. We did one project for Hasbro and I'm trying to remember what it was. And I remember we spent a long time and you may know this, but RISD, one of the you know best known design schools in the US in Providence, that's where Hasbro and Mattel are. And it's no accident. It's just like Art Center in Pasadena and the auto manufacturers out there. It's, you know, there is a reason that uh, and a synergy there. And so I'd say it's probably an area I haven't I haven't really had a chance to explore to the degree I'd like to. Um, and uh, it's something I admire. I don't know that I'd be any good at it, but I'd have a lot of fun trying. Yeah, it, it takes me back to the very first episode of this podcast actually now several years ago and that the very first person I interviewed was a lady called Patrizia Bertini who specializes in the Lego serious play methodology of facilitating workshops and I've got to admit I went into that conversation as a bit of a skeptic about the role that play could have in the design process and came out of it utterly converted to the methodology and the role that play can having that sort of creativity and, and prompting that that thought. Um, but I wanted to pick up on something else that you mentioned earlier, because obviously uh, you've written this book, co-authored this book with your collaborative partner, but you mentioned there as well about your mother being involved in, in publishing and books. Uh, how, how early on did you start thinking that that would be something that was interesting for you to get involved with as well? Uh, you know, obviously this book has come out more recently, but have there been other moments where you have um, wanted to be or considered yourself uh, uh, an author? It's a great question. And I would say generally, no. I think if um, if you talk to folks who've worked in the book industry, and I say this, my sister, Patricia Fabricant, is a pretty well-known book designer. And she got her first job in book design through a publishing house that I had worked at over a summer. It it cures you <laughs> of in some ways of your desire to, to be an author and create a book. It's a it's a very tough business and uh, not getting any easier. So I've always admired I admire many things about what my mother does. And in many ways, maybe to first tie a little bow while I don't know that I've I have or should indulge fully, you know, kind of the more toy playful side of my own creativity. I'm not sure that's where I have the, the most to add. What I did learn from my mom and what I do a ton of is cooking and the, the kind of improvisational nature of that. Uh, I was a little bit of a latchkey kid in middle school and high school, but my mom as a food writer was constantly getting food sent to the house. And so I was constantly having ingredients to work with to make a meal, to sort of connect the dots back to those robots. You know, I've always enjoyed that sort of moment of alchemy where you take things that seem unrelated and can kind of pull them together into a fantastic meal. 
Um, and I think that's a place where some of that playfulness kind of comes through. Uh, in terms of books, you know, I really did not have a strong ambition to be an author. And in many ways, you know, in, in, in most ways, Cliff was the author of this book and wrote this book. So I give myself a lot of credit because the idea for the book and the ability to see what it could be really is something that I brought to the table. And I think, you know, to bring it back to what this podcast is about, the book really came out of, out of a need. I felt that there was, there were, there were a couple needs out in the world that were not being met. And I felt that this was the right vehicle to do it, the right product to do it. Uh, the first need that I didn't think was being met is I felt as designers, particularly of the sort of user centered product and experience side of design, that there was a missing narrative that we were all assembling these stories and connecting them back, but that that narrative hadn't really been told um, in a way that would put all the pieces together as to where we were today and told in a way that's accessible to a broad audience. And so Cliff was somebody who I felt was uniquely able to do that, given that he'd worked both in creating digital products and as, a, as an author and, an, and particularly in a, a reporter, an investigative reporter. Um, and then the second piece of it was this sense that these concepts had now kind of sort of through the back door, which is a term Henry Dreyfus used, through the back door had found their way into so many aspects of our lives. And, you know, this is even more true during COVID now as so much work has gone online. And so many of the concepts that drive the way we collaborate and the way we um, connect and the way we relate and celebrate and um, spend time together is so mediated uh, by products and particularly digital products. I just saw these two things maybe, well, yeah, I guess it was seven, now seven, seven, eight years ago um, as, as needs in the market. And I felt at that point that there was, that this was going to be the, maybe the right way to do it. Um, there were certainly some fun parts in the, in the production of the book, but I would say overall, it really didn't come out of any desire to be an author or to, to, to have a book on the shelf, so to speak. It really came out of like, a feeling that there was just a gap um, and a need that was very pressing and urgent. So when you and I first met, I guess the prompt for it was that you were doing work in the, the technology industry at the time. You were helping uh, companies that were working around the area of, of mobile in some way, shape or form to get their heads around this area of, of human-centered design. And it it just occurs to me that, yeah, from what you've described there, that there's almost a bit of circularity happening here, that there was this great demand within the technology industry from companies to be able to understand the human-centered design process and to use that to guide what was you know, really a very engineering-driven product culture for, for a long time, and in some companies still is. But that you know, as you're describing there, as more and more has gone online, more and more has become virtualized in the interactions that we have, particularly now at this time of, of social distancing and lockdown and the, the implications of the pandemic, that those kind of th those products which were initially driven by a desire and a perceived lack of 
human-centered design input are now actually coming full circle to sort of influence human behaviors that themselves. Um, is that making too much of a stretch or are you, you getting the sense that that sort of circularity of influence is starting to, to occur? Yeah, it's very perceptive. And I, what I will say in terms of when you and I first met is that I think you saw that early on as well. Um, and I would add, before I directly answer your question, I'd add two, from my perspective, two nuances to it. Um, the first is that it wasn't that the mobile phone itself was such an interesting design problem to me. It was that what mobile technology was doing was taking a whole host of design problems and concepts and bringing them closer and closer to that moment where we make choices and and closer and closer to the behavior that is emerges out in the world so it was less the phone itself i am not interested particularly interested in phones it's less the apps themselves it was more and i think you understood this as well as anybody it was more that it was bringing out design concepts and challenges right to the surface layer skin of so much of our lives and that leads to the second thing i would point to which is this kind of crazy moment we're in where we've seen that that process run completely unconstrained to the point where there are little bits of mediated digital uh, interactions and, and an ability for designed um, interactions to be at so many moments out in the world that we are in now, right? There, it's with us everywhere. At the same time, during COVID to this other kind of reality of how everything is virtualized in a way that, again, the last 15, 20 years was building as, as a groundswell and is now kind of washed across us. So you have this, this, it's not just about a virtualized experience. You have this kind of combination of understanding, you know, how much of our emotional lives are now funneled through uh, a virtual environment and also how much the tools and technologies that design can bring to the table are reaching out into every capillary of our, of our physical lives and, and the, the stuff we do day to day. So to me, those two things are becoming one thing and, and they're kind of bookended. And what's interesting in terms of the circularity of it, I think when you come back to something like human-centered design or user-centered design, the circularity really played out in many ways during the period that we wrote this book, where um, we saw kind of a cycle, cultural cycle happen, where the notion of having this feedback and being able to access people information and get immediate you know, gratification for it, went from being this incredible engine of hope and progress to this incredible uh, sense of um, you know, risk and um, concern and anxiety. And that really happened if you think about when we started writing this book six, seven years ago, or at least conceptualizing it, we weren't in that place. And what came full circle was a sense that that feedback loop, you know, had gone from being something that was exhilarating to something that was deeply troubling. And that's created, a, I think, a different environment when we released the book than we expected and allowed the book itself to the process of writing the book and particularly Cliff's process of assembling the stories and reporting it to go on that full circular journey you were just talking about. Has it changed your hopes for the lessons that are articulated within the book and how they'll be used? You know, that that notion that it was something which was conceptualized and developed and published 
at a time which had, I guess, rather different characteristics in the, the global picture, given how significant an impact the last uh, six months, uh, you know, nearly nine months now of living in this world of the pandemic has had. You know, did you go into the creation of that book with a set of hopes about how those lessons would be used and have now had to, I guess, have a, a slight change of mindset about how they might now be used in this different environment that we're living in? It's a great, also a great question. I think, first of all, I think I, in some ways, while for different reasons, both Cliff and I felt a bit tortured by the time frame that it took to get the book out, I think had... And, and part of that, just to go on a quick dog leg, what I didn't recognize coming back to my proximity to publishing, because I had worked in publishing quite a bit be early in my career. Again, I, I've had a number of careers. I took a big step away from design for many years, but um, I, I wasn't close to the process of really what it took to actually write a book. And this was also, by the way, Cliff's first attempt at writing a book. And so what I think he fundamentally understood, which I didn't, was that for this sort of book to be successful, we had to be able to place people in situations and provide characters and narratives that brought these design situations to life, both historical ones and ones that bring us up to the present. And that's not an easy task. It's not easy to put the reader in those design situations. And part of the reason to do it is it makes the storytelling much more accessible. It makes the concepts and lessons less didactic and mo more uh, visceral. That's the first thing. And second thing is it exposes something that you and I know, but many people I think don't quite appreciate that so many of the products and the concepts behind those products that have taken over in our lives were created by quirky individuals in situations in which they were not fully informed. It didn't have a way of sort of quote unquote engineering what the conditions would be for those ideas. And they weren't, they didn't have a, a way to vet or stress test what the consequences of those, of those ideas would be. So it's partly also to highlight, like, we've gotten here in part because a bunch of individuals, and if you look at the book, maybe 15, 20, or 30, were passionate and curious about certain ideas and certain questions, found a pathway to pursue them, found a path, an environment in which they could create products or services that address those needs or or suggested new possibilities and somehow those things made it out into the world on a scale they probably didn't ever anticipate and there's a happenstance to that and there's both a quirkiness to it and a um a very relatable you know human nature to being in those situations but also at the same time and an instance to it but also at the same time an incredible uh you know, element of ignorance in many of these situations. So it was really interesting to to try and figure out well how do how do you how do you take that and how do you build piece by piece from things that happened 100, 125 years ago to the present, the both the immediacy to put people in those situations and an understanding that designers are are at, in most cases just problem solvers and troubleshooters who are creatively going about something they're curious about. And yet more and more those choices and decisions are having bigger and bigger ramifications in our lives. So, you know, that's why it took six years is that those stories are not easy to come by, you know, and you have uh, many important events in the history that we captured in the book that we couldn't find those stories for or someone to report or relate those stories. You know, the classic one being 
Donald Norman's role in the Three Mile Island investigation uh, ahead of him writing the design of everyday things and all the rest of it. So, you know, in many ways, that is the fundamental condition behind a lot of this work. And um, it is kind of what made writing the story, writing this book, such a tortured process because those many of those stories were latent and many of the characters behind them um, were not accessible. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting process. And so it means in many ways that that extended period I think was a gift because it allowed some pivoting to happen and um, an ability to catch up with the moment. And I think in many ways made the book to answer your question much more timely and the lessons of it much more urgent. So that's my answer number one. So the second part of your answer is I do feel like given that sort of six year gap, it was a, a, in many ways a gift and a luxury to be able to sort of shift and, and, and follow, follow through the narrative, the stories we told a change in a bit of a change in mindset and capture the problematic nature of why a user-centered approach to products and services and why this culture of feedback and many of the things that we, um, that the book is telling the history of, why it's turned into such a potentially um, problematic dynamic now in our day-to-day -day lives. So I feel like we were, we had the luxury of that time looking back on it. And if the book had been easier to assemble and come out earlier, it might have not been as relevant to the moment we're in now. So that was my first answer. But my second answer is the ramifications are still now playing out and playing out at a speed and a scale that I think both the pandemic, um, other challenges we're facing around the election and the political cycle, many of those things, those ramifications are playing out very quickly now. And I feel like the book tees up a bit of uh, a backstory as to how we find ourselves enmeshed in the systems and in the platforms uh, that we are so dependent on now. But it did, doesn't have the luxury of uh, kind of playing out the, the ramifications that we're going to see in the next three to five years. And that's the part where I think, you know, history is a helpful kind of mirror to let us know that these sorts of challenges have been faced by designers before. But at the same time, I feel like the way those ramifications are playing out in my own work related to the pandemic and in my own personal life, I feel like the next couple of years are going to tell a really rich story. And that's definitely not something that we have captured in the book. And uh, I'm hoping that the book helps a lot of designers who are now faced with the situations and the challenges we're working on today to feel more confident in why design and the tools of design are such a necessary part to addressing these challenges, but also better to, better equipped to question those fundamental concepts, understanding better where they came from. Well, I think one of the things which really shines through for me with the book is that you went to the trouble of getting that real breadth of examples from different points in history, from different industries to show you know how accessible and useful these kind of techniques can be across such a wide range of different areas uh, and i mean i think it will be really fascinating to see how those principles are applied and how the book might 
end up becoming a bit of a manual for taking on those kind of macro challenges which have become so pressing in, in different areas of life um, just in, in the last little while. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned as well about how it relates to the work that you do in your professional design practice as well. Uh, and I wonder how you organize those parts of, of the effort towards an overall purpose in your own mind, you know, how you see the work on the book sitting alongside the work that you do in professional practice, the work that you do with other organizations as well to support their efforts. You know, do you do you see that as part as an overall continuous mission or purpose that is driving what you do or do you compartmentalize those a little bit more as to, to what they're uh, what they achieve for you and, and what they achieve in terms of your contribution to, to the world as a whole it's a great question and and um, there are elements of doing a book like this that felt more bookending so to speak kind of where I'm at now as opposed to moving forward you know it felt like a chapter in some ways that needed to be kind of captured in terms of my own thinking about design. So there are definitely elements of, I think, what I do today that feel like they're extending outside and don't overlap as much with, with the story that the book was telling. But I will say there are some strong connection points and I'll give you an example. So uh, we had the good fortune two years ago to have some funding from the two biggest funders in global health, which is the US government, USAID, and the Gates Foundation, to sort of help them try and capture the value that design can bring to global health. This is all pre-pandemic, but it was built on the back of work that had happened that we had done, again, with some of those same funders around Ebola, around Zika, on um, issues related to AIDS and HIV, which, as you recall, uh, when I was on uh, you know, presenting at MEX many years ago, the topic was was HIV. So, you know, I've had a long history of working in global health, but this was coming back to the book, a really interesting opportunity to try and bring a community together. It was us, it was IDO.org, it was a lot of organizations also not out, outside of design like JSI and others who work in global health and to try and figure out, well, how do you tell that story? And how do you get a community of practitioners in global health outside the design community who on the one hand, you know, health as a field is a very human-centered field, right? Almost everybody you encounter, even if they're very senior at a place like WHO and working in policy and on very broad scale kind of questions around global health has at some point been a frontline doctor, physician, health worker. So there's, 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 a, there's a, an affinity there that I've always felt that I've always loved and enjoyed. But, you know, the reason I bring it back to the book is in this case, Part of what we we're trying to say is the role that design and designers can play in health is a long and rich one. So you trace it back to Helen Keller and the Crimean War and the work she did to look at infection rates and to visualize that data. Um, there's a long history of collaboration where design and designers have played a role in TB. You look at the, even the 2018 you know, uh, Spanish flu epidemic and you see evidence of design. Uh, the the um, the, the interesting design story behind the masks we're wearing today. There's a huge amount of history there. Um, so that was the first thing was let's not frame this as, you know, what can UX or design today do with global health? Let's look at that history. And then what sat under it was let's look at the fundamental principles, the ethics of 
the global health community and the ethics of the design community and the human-centered design community, and let's look and, and call out a set of shared principles. And so I bring this up because, you know, I feel like maybe somewhat accidentally, you know, I find that I'm now in the work that I do because I'm mostly working with governments and in large societal and social actors, foundations and others, there is a real gap in helping people understand why a, a design or why design has a seat at the table. And being able to draw on the history, um, some of it I've assembled, you know, through just my own wanderings and some of it, a book allows you to sort of consolidate, to be able to sort of sit and say, you know, there are major changes in the course of society, major events in our lifetimes where the role of design has been pivotal, number one. Number two, there have been major situations in which design has helped unlock and helped us understand better how to solve problems. This is not a new idea. It's, it's some of what I bring to the table. And the book has helped me backfill, helped me take stories that I knew something about and really build them out into a base of knowledge. And in this case, this was a base of knowledge we were trying not to deliver to the design community, but to the global health community to say, yes, you work with social sciences and you already do a lot of qualitative research. And yes, you have a rigorous process through remote control tiles to test and gather evidence around which solutions work and don't. But there's a big gap in between those things. Um, and the deep you know, ethnographic research you might do around people and how they access and use health services and the sorts of solutions you can run through an evidence-based process like that, in between those two is a huge area of value where design can play a role. And so part of my job in, in many of those situations, a part of it has to do with you know, having gray hair or no hair at this point in time. So being able to, you know, come in with a, a little bit of, of, of credibility as someone who's been on this journey for a while is to help place the problems we're working on today in that kind of context. And, you know, the pandemic is, is one example of that. Um, there are many others that we work on. I'm working today with UNICEF on an initiative called GIGA that's trying to connect every school in the world to the internet, to high-speed internet as a, as a way to open up information, not just to, to school children, but to the communities around them. And you take an idea like that, and it seems very much like it could only be happening right now in 2020. And it has a new urgency based on the pandemic. You know, the New York Times reported about school kids in Indonesia getting on tuk-tuks and motorbikes to try and find in rural Indonesia a place where there's just enough cell service to be able to log into classrooms. But if you walk that idea back, the building blocks for it extend back 70 or 80 years in terms of our relationship with phones, you know, the work Henry Dreyfus did to observe teenagers using phones and to, you know, launch with AT&T the first, um, you know, phone that was designed out of a lifestyle, out of an understanding of people's behavior, which was the princess phone. So there's a lot of history there. And so, you know, being able to speak to that is a part of what I enjoy. Uh, about kind of having completed the process, not just the, having the book in, in the world, but having completed that process. And a lot of where I feel like there, there, there remains uh, an opportunity as we try and tee up both with some humility the role that design can play and some of the downsides of design choices that have been made in the past, but also the opportunity there. There's just, there's just a huge amount of um, dialogue you can open up when you bring that kind of you know, uh, broader context to the table. Now, when you look back over the, the course of your career and have the, the benefit of hindsight about the different 
I guess, channels or approaches that you've been able to apply to, to working with design in different areas and in different ways as as an author, as a, a consultant within the agency world, um, as a, a collaborator on many different projects. You know, if you were talking to your young self going into the working world at that, that moment when you, you embarked on that career, um, what would be your reflections on what's been, I suppose, the most effective channel for achieving that overall purpose of getting these approaches to, to deliver human benefit? Um, you know, I think particularly here about the role of agencies and how they've changed in that, you know, for many designers that has been the the route to their purpose has been to work in the agency world uh, and whether now having spent this time in that environment but also working in a number of different ways as a designer you have any reflections on on what that might look like in the the future if it were your young self going into the the, the workplace today that's a that's a great question and given the, the twists and turns i've had in my own life it's a little hard to to walk it back one thing i did want to say before I answer your question, is that it was not Helen Keller, it was Florence Nightingale, uh, that reference I gave to using data and design, um, you know, more than a century ago to communicate um, about infection rates during during the Crimean War. So I did want to clarify that. You see, that this would have been the test of my edit process, Robert, if I'd have managed to spot that when I was going back through, but you've, you've done my work for me now. There you go. <laughs> so advice to, I can think of where I was when I was younger and the curiosity I had. Um, but I think there was a real difference, which is I, you know, I was a, a creative kid living in a very, you know, what I would say kind of crowded, dense, somewhat chaotic urban environment in New York and seeing so many different and diverse people and activities and industries and infrastructure all around me. It seemed like a very rich, messy world. And the disconnect I had is when I went into an environment like Chermayev and Geismar to work there, it felt like the job of the designer was to just clean everything up, so to speak. You know, all that messiness, all the exciting energy of how things grow and change and the dynamics with which individuals can plug into that and have a voice and an identity. It felt like a lot, and, and, and I think Cliff is quite articulate about it, a lot of that, you know, intensity and that friction and that diversity and that dynamism, that the job of the designer was kind of to sand it off the surface to get to these sort of idealized, true kind of relationships or expressions or forms you know, and I'm not saying anything that, you know, many designers haven't thought about, but I think that that was the dominant kind of view of design. And, and certainly the Swiss kind of inspired, German inspired, Bauhaus inspired ideal. Um, and I guess for me, that was very off putting. It didn't seem to relate to the world I was in. It seemed very rarefied and it seemed at times self-serving in that the privilege of just slowly sanding things down, paring things down to their essence and that kind of intellectual satisfaction. While I admire 
designers for whom that is such a great pleasure. I feel like at times is a self-indulgent one. And I felt that at that time, like I couldn't make that connection between the sort of scattered, dynamic, playful, coming back to something we talked about earlier, messy world and where designers were placing their time and emphasis. And so that was the puzzle for me as a kid. And that's why um, early on, while I'd had the privilege growing up in New York and through some publishing connections and other things to wander into some pretty rarefied design environments, whether it was something like the Museum of Modern Art and their publication department, or an incredible, like I don't mean to, to in any way undercut the amazing work that, you know, uh, corporate strategy and identity firms like Chermayev and I did, and, and guys Mark do, it, it just, there was too big a gap for me to, to fill. And so this, the step I took was to go into criminal justice advocacy to work in the civic sector when I got out of college, because there I felt I could get my hands much more, you know, in the meat of people and their lives and the problems that they were having and doing community organizing in New York state around criminal justice. That was like, it was much more hands-on and it felt much more um, immediate. And so in a way it took me a long time to find my way back. And I feel like we're a little bit in another one of those moments where because the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak, designing interactions that people have with the products and services we create is so varied and so global. I, I struggle because I feel like so many designers react to that with a desire to reassert that kind of control through these highly, you know, um, simplified, I think, you know, um, the whole Android design system material, all those things embody this idea of somehow if we can get all these messy pieces to fit back into this lovely organized palette of, you know, rounded edged uh, surfaces and panels in the world of UX, at least that somehow it will make more sense and be more meaningful to people. And I'd say every bit of experience I have is quite the opposite that people and the messiness and the somewhat incomplete nature of what we create is what brings value to design is what invites participation. It's what brings people back into the process and the more hermetic and, um, you know, curated elements of how we'd like our design to look are often what holds us back. Uh, so that's just, it may not be all the advice I could give in the world, but it is one reflection is anytime you think you've reduced design to its essential, anytime you think you've brought the pieces together into harmony, you know, go back out into the marketplace, go back out into the messy world of people's lives and place that thing back in that context and recognize that you haven't answered for all the questions, dynamics, and needs there. And you need to now take this structure that you've thought through that's been such a satisfying process to think through, and you need to rip the, the top off it again and let some of the pieces start to fall, fall back out and rearrange themselves and deal with, you know, sort of deal and embrace that messy reality and not look at that as a compromise, not look at that as a failure, um, but look at that as you know, what makes design brings, you know, really brings design to life and makes it alive in the world. So um, that's a bit of a maybe a biased rant from my experience, but part of what I love about the work that we do in Dahlberg Design and having design teams in Dakar and Mumbai and Nairobi is, you know, those are cultures and environments that are so dynamic where the richness 
of the experiences that we have and the challenges and the lives that we get to tap into in the work we do and the communities we work with, you know, sets a very high bar for me. And what we're able to create to support that richness to bring value and meaning, you know, um, it's constantly falling short and um, is constantly, there's a constant gap, you know, coming back to where I started. And that's kind of what drives me in the work that we do. And it's a, it's a tricky balance because the young designers I work with are constantly looking for a way that they can somehow contain it and capture it in an app or in a product, you know, or in a service experience. And they'll hang on to their journey map and their service designs, you know, kind of strategy and their touch points and their blueprint and think, okay, that's, that's what's going to make, you know, this experience more coherent. And I appreciate the desire for that, but I also feel like the fact that that's always kind of a moving horizon is, is the point of design. It's not kind of a failure. And that's, that's, you know, that's a journey that I think takes some time and experience to get comfortable with. Uh, and it's definitely something that many other designers uh, who are way above my pay grade in terms of kind of what they've achieved um, and the value they've created would probably, you know, push back on violently. But that's that's kind of the way I see the world. And that maybe brings it back to kind of where I started and what got me back into design after, you know, uh, struggling to see where and how my my curiosity would would um, be be well served by a career in design at the you know, when I was young. Is there anything you're hoping to have an opportunity to try with the work that you're doing at, at, at Dalberg and the way that that is structured towards that goal? Because I, I take your point there, and I think it's a, a fascinating one about that kind of inherent tension between maybe even the, the fundamental way that design is, is taught in a lot of places about that sort of desire to in some way bring some order to kind of look for the the system thinking around things and to, to use that as a way of of organizing the approach to the work versus when you're working in the kind of environments that I know Dalberg does and that that richness and variety of different cultures and experiences that you must be encountering and people seeing in the, the field um, it just makes me curious as to whether or not sort of at the back of your mind you have any ideas brewing about how you ensure that the the organization and the way it's structured continues to be able to sort of embrace that that richness and, and strike that balance between those those two different um, approaches you know it even makes me think a little bit back to uh, the manifesto point that you spoke on at mex back in 2009 where i think we were sort of alluding to that notion that actually design was not something that you take out from the ivory towers of people who you know largely had been sort of educated in the the, the western sense of the world to other parts of the world and take out there as a, a way of doing things it's actually something which needs to be very much a circular flow and in fact that flow is probably the most positive when it comes back in the other direction and learns from the the environments it's in but you know on a day-to-day -day basis when you're trying to, to to build and lead a firm such as as yours um you know, what are the things you can actually try to um, to ensure that that remains the case? These are, you know, these are definitely pressing questions. And um, I really enjoy putting myself in situations where I don't, you know, particularly at my age, that, that I don't have easy answers. And part of the big shift from a place like Frog to the practice we have at Dahlberg was a, a strong desire at the age of, 
you know, as I pushed 50, as I went into middle age to place myself back in situations in which um, there were a lot more questions and a lot more uncertainty around the value of what I do and what I've learned, you know, and at, towards the end of my time at the last, you know, as I looked at, I don't know, you know, 2000 and maybe seven or eight to 2014, when I left Frog, you know, more and more I was getting opportunities coming from our client base in which the concepts of kind of user-centered design, service design, the need to think in a holistic way about the customer experience, like those concepts had so fundamentally landed in businesses, they weren't necessarily doing them well, but most businesses and organizations that Frog engaged with, we weren't bringing those concepts to them. You know, they were already either had hired and built their own team or very much aware of those concepts. And so, you know, for me, taking a step into a very uncertain environment where you're dealing with government and policymakers, where you're dealing with community-based organizations and civic sector actors is fundamentally, you know, uh, a desire to be back in a space where there is a lot of uncertainty and where I do need to kind of reset my expectations for you know, what credibility I have or or what I do might have and, and the way it can deliver value. So that's a big part of, of the journey that, that uh, you know, Ravi and I tried to set in motion when we joined this firm. Uh, and it's still a pretty humbling one. Coming back to your question, I mean, there's, there's some very basic things about that I'm still learning. You know, we have, uh, we have a strong desire to figure out how to bring the incredible rich creative talent and capacity of the groups and communities we work with to the table in ways that we haven't seen happen uh, traditionally, you know, and the diversity, the lack of diversity in the design field is appalling, um, at least in the agency world and in, in the corporate world. Um, so part of the answer to me is how do I empower those teams? How do I empower individuals? Most of our design team hasn't worked at an agency, didn't come from design school. So I look to those individuals to show me in many ways, how our practice needs to grow and change and evolve. And I feel like where I come in is setting the conditions for those individuals to succeed and thrive and become creative leaders. And I do feel that the opportunity we have, both within the design practice we built at Dahlberg, but the broader firm, you know, the firm itself is populated with a lot of people in their 20s and 30s with incredible backgrounds. One of the things we do when we get together in our global retreats is we do this quick exercise to figure out how to create a picture of that diversity. And so you've got maybe 400 people in the room and everybody stands up and we start with the first person in the first row and they name one language that they speak. And if that's the only language you speak, you sit down. And so it's a very rapid exercise. Within three minutes, we can count off the number of languages spoken in that room. And with 400 people, it's somewhere around 75 languages. And you get to very specific, you know, I mean, take a country like Nigeria, India, there are dozens of languages spoken. So it's, it's a fascinating, humbling exercise, partly because I only speak English, so I sit down after two seconds, you know, and I get to see all these rich young people within, who are incredibly well-trained, who are incredibly passionate about the difference they wanna make in the world. And so coming back to your question, part of my job and part of where I come in as someone with some gray hair and some wisdom is to embed within them an appreciation for design and creative problem solving. Because they're going to go on to, you know, in the next 15, 20 years to senior roles in governments, senior roles in um, civic organizations. They're going to start, you know, social enterprises and tech startups. They're going to do all this stuff. 
And I want them to start it with a passion and an appreciation for why design and why user-centered approaches are, are critical to any of those things. And so that's that's what I feel like we're trying to do. And that's in many ways the diverse marketplace I'm operating in. And my hope is, you know, partly having a book and having some stories to get them excited and to see design in a different way. I can start that journey. And in 10 or 15 years, when I'm, you know, sitting in my duff, playing with my Japanese robots or doing whatever it is I'm doing, I'll read about the incredible things that these people have gone on to accomplish and know that part of how they got there was uh, by thinking about, if not the role of designers specifically, at least a uh, sort of more human and user-centered approach to how they solve problems, uh, a way to prototype and test their ideas that they never would have had otherwise. So that's, that's what I'm excited about. Um, and I'm seeing it play out in a lot of fields uh, through the diversity of what Dahlberg does. And I'm pretty agnostic to what those fields are. But um, there are places where it's more natural. You know, we've worked with a host of actors within the firm and outside the firm to launch big digital platforms uh, in Kenya and to support the Indian government um, around their WhatsApp services for COVID and things like that. So we see we see natural places where um, it's very easy to map people's preconceptions about design to those problem spaces. But then we're seeing things that are quite different. We're working in West Africa right now with six or seven different uh, health systems to figure out how they collaborate and share information, both during pandemics, but, but beyond pandemics. And there's a set of questions around collaboration models and tools that design can inform there that are very different. And it's taken us some time to work our way into those kinds of conversations. And that's, that's where I think there's a huge, you know, potential for us to kind of shift the model of what we do as designers within our practice and um, and grow into new areas that just have me have me super excited um, and I think um, offer you know offer new potential. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised they they leave you excited. I mean, as you described that, it leaves me feeling quite hopeful. I've got this sort of rather lovely image in my mind going back to your points about the power of historical examples of this sort of process of all of these Trojan horses going out into the world to take that kind of approach, you know, those lessons learned about the the value of, of design and those techniques into, as you say, those governments, non-governmental organizations. And the fact that you're going into that knowing that or hoping that of those several hundred people in the room, they will not end up necessarily being designers in design firms, but in fact will go on to use those kind of skills and techniques uh, as part and parcel of being in a whole host of other organizations. I think that's that's quite a hopeful notion, really, that uh, we can make some, some change happen on a, a large scale by adopting that kind of approach. Yeah, I like to see it as very, very hopeful. And um, at this point, I feel like I can probably help accomplish more there than I can by, you know, myself trying to think through the next product or service that we work on. So, you know, it's definitely where my head is at and the notion of building creative capacity and creative leadership directly through the studios we're creating, but more broadly through the, you know, uh, Trojan horses that exist within Dahlberg and the partner organizations we work with. To me, that's, you know, the most gratifying part. Uh, it's very personal because I get to interact with people and talk to them and see where their passions and curiosity are and, you know, bring to the table 
kind of the stories and ideas that I think will help pick the lock for them. It doesn't work in every case, but um, but it's really, to me, a very um, reinvigorating process. And it definitely is a good counterbalance to some of the fear and cynicism that can come through right now, both generally, given where we are as a society, as well as in the design community itself. You know, having been at um, the Interaction Conference in February in Milan, just before the pandemic shut everything down, there's fear and cynicism. Uh, I don't know if you've read Ruined by Design, Mike Montero's book, but you know, there's fear and cynicism right now in that I think designers have found themselves with a lot more power and influence than they know what to do with. And I've seen the negative effects of choices and our roles in ways that I don't think people anticipated. So to me, it really is the it's the counterbalance to that that, that keeps me going for sure. I wanted to ask you one last question, Robert, and it actually it relates back to a part of the book, which I think was an experience that your your co-author Cliff um, had directly, but I wonder if you you recall this section of the book and talking about the the power of metaphor and how fundamental these metaphors are to the way that we perceive the world and how they've carried over into product design and particularly digital products, and that. One of the things that I guess you've both experienced as designers is seeing just how different those metaphors can be in all of these different cultures and when you're meeting different people and and out there doing research in the field. And I was just curious as to whether or not there was a particular time when you have found a metaphor that you had sort of considered to be fundamental to, to yourself, contradicted by something that you had observed out in the field where you'd realized that actually people in other parts of the world or in other walks of life actually have a a very different base metaphor that they're working from? I'll give you two examples. One I think speaks to um, a little more directly the question and then uh, one that's probably been on my mind for different reasons. It's definitely a great question and as I have the privilege of kind of surfing and navigating across a lot of the work we do, it's incredibly exciting and interesting to try and understand and to appreciate how smart and sophisticated people's thinking is everywhere once you meet them at their level, you know. Uh, one of the ones, coming back to your question, I'll give us a fairly obvious example. It's a little bit in the book as well, is we do a lot of work with communities, both in the U.S., frankly, uh, lower income communities, as well as as abroad in, in a variety of markets around the notion of financial health. How do you help people build financial reserves? And uh, you quickly run into the fact that the concept of savings and the metaphor that goes with that of, you know, so to speak, taking money and locking it in a safe seems like such a clear metaphor to us, but it's so confusing in other parts of the world and in many of the, you know, people and, and individuals that we talk to, for them, you know, they think about reserves, they might think about a cow, they might think about bags of rice, something that has real value, number one, is something that they can convert into other value. And so very simple concepts like that are very confusing and, you know, in many ways limit what we what we bring to the table in terms of potential design ideas. So how do you help kind of uh, rethink with, with banks, you know, the purpose uh, financial tools. I'll give you an example. I was just talking to um, some partners we're working with in Nigeria, and they went out. We, we were training up some folks in financial institutions to go out and um, do some research in uh, rural communities around financial tools. 
And I was asking them about what kind of nuance and insights uh, they had heard. And they, one of them gave me this anecdote. He was talking to someone and this person was like, I don't understand. So if I buy into this little micro savings program and I, I put money with you in the bank, I get annually, you know, back a tiny little bit of interest, three, four, 5%. Yet if I take a loan, you charge me 10 or 15 or 20% interest. That doesn't make any sense. And of course, someone who works in the banking system understands perfectly why there's that difference. But the logical model, the metaphor for why that would be was completely broken for them. So it's, it's interesting. And I think when we look at the work we've done with internet adoption and internet access, we run into these metaphors all the time. You know, the World Wide Web, the notion of how you use form-based tools to sign up for a service. That comes from the fact that we all filled out forms to vote and to do driver's license. It's all a set of pre-existing experiences that they're built on. And they're all metaphors that have struggled to make sense and make products that, that work for people. Um, so, you know, it's something that, that we see a lot and um, it does, definitely is very helpful in helping not only you think about how you design for those contexts, but helping you reset your assumptions on why, um, you know, the, the, the tools and products we interact with ourselves are, are built off those assumptions, you know, and I think in the book, the example that we bring to the table that's so rich in our lives right now is the notion of driving and how that's, how that's changing. So I hope that answers your question. The one thing that I had that I thought might um, also be of interest on the topic of metaphors that's been on my mind is the notion of bending the curve. You know, and during this pandemic, while you're right, in a lot of the work we do, we see different ways that metaphors play out in different places. It's been very interesting to me to see how that met metaphor has really caught on in so many parts of the world and help people understand and adopt practices that were not self-centered in their own behavior change, but were very community oriented. Um, so it's been a metaphor that's been on my mind a lot because it brings to life and helps you understand the pandemic and relate to it in a way that I think is very much uh, similar to a lot of the concepts that we've talked about in the book um, and how that unlocks and has unlocked this kind of global experiment in the way people have changed their behavior that without that metaphor, I think would have been much harder, harder one um, and harder for people to understand um, and adopt. So anyway, that's probably on the topic of metaphor, the one that's been on my mind the most. And I've been sort of struck by the success that it's had and the value it's created. And in many ways, you know, the number of lives that have been saved by, by how well that metaphor has been introduced and reinforced across so many different places in the world. So maybe that's a closing thought that brings us back to kind of the more we're in today. And I guess very reflective of the importance that you've placed on historical concept uh, in the, the book as well. You know, if you think about some of the most compelling early examples of infographics and the, the use of graphic design as a discipline, they were when they were applied to the world of medicine and, and public health. I'm thinking in particular of an exhibition which they had at the British Library going back a few years ago now, where they were showing some of the original infographics which were used to help people understand the spread of things like cholera in cities uh, and the impact that those had. And, you know, it just makes you wonder about when we look back in perhaps 100, 200 years time at all of these materials and media that were created to show that curve during this time of the, the pandemic, what we will think of it then, how we'll look back and reflect on those lessons in, in years to come. Indeed. 
Well, Robert, thank you very much indeed for taking the time out of your day to talk about all of this uh, and to write the the book itself with your your co-author. Obviously, we'll put a link in the show notes so that uh, listeners can go off and discover that for themselves. Uh, But it's also just been lovely to have the chance to catch up after a number of years and uh, hear a bit more about what's been happening in your world. So thanks very much indeed for taking the time. Thanks for opening up the forum and helping me connect with the with the MEX community. Uh, I know you've spent a lot of time building this community. It's not something that um, you've done trivially, and and it's been a long time since I tapped into this group, but I know it's an amazing effort, and and, and I really appreciate how much you've dedicated to continuing to try and uh, serve uh, as um, an interesting point of connection for people in the in in these emerging fields so it's just been great to see how you've nurtured that along and uh, appreciate that uh, that you were able to reach out and we were finally able to connect say so, and uh, yeah connections is what the mixed community thrives on so i'm sure we'll be establishing many more of those in the, the future so robert talked a bit about privilege in that conversation in its different forms And having a chat like this reminded me what a privilege it is for me to get to sit down and have these conversations, you know, virtually, even as we're all in our different ways struggling with probably not being able to get out to the events and the conferences where we might have looked for these kind of discussions before. It's something that I really relish and appreciate. And it's lovely for me not only to have those conversations, but to be able to share them with you on on this podcast. So do let me know what you thought. You can email me. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. It's always wonderful to hear your feedback. Uh, And of course, things like suggestions for future guests as well. If there's someone that you'd like to recommend to come on the show, uh, drop me a line. Those kind of introductions and recommendations are far and away the, the best way that we get the best people to come on the podcast for a chat. The show notes, which have got links to everything that Robert and I talked about, including, of course, his book, are, as always, at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Now, I'm looking forward to being back soon with another episode for you. But for now, why not dwell on that last bit of the conversation with Robert? You know, the bit where he gave us such a refreshingly hopeful vision, that vision of yeah, hundreds of new people from all over the world, from diverse backgrounds, diverse cultures, getting involved with human-centered design and taking its principles out into settings where they can make a difference. I like that. I, I like that thought a lot. That's something I'm hopeful we're going to see a lot more of. It's November 2020, as I record this, and tides are turning all over the world. Share this freely with your friends. So many of you listeners are such great advocates for the show and for the MEX community as a whole, and that's something I'm very grateful for. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.